0: Amen. Shalom Aleichem, my friends. Thank you so much for joining today. It's just, it's phenomenal. It's it's phenomenal. The Torah is amazing. I can't even tell you I figured all this out. But there's a lot of fascinating Torah we're going to study together today because when you read the verses properly, there's such a wealth, such depth, such profundity. It's just, it's exhilarating. I find it inspiring and uplifting. I hope that you will too. Today, we're going to be revisiting some of the battles or the struggles we spoke about previously. But today, for the first time, we're also going to hear about respite, relief, and celebration. What happened the day after tomorrow in Shushan, and around the world. Before I begin, I would like to gratefully acknowledge today's special sponsors. And they are our dear show members, Laura and Fred Sheinbaum, who are sponsoring this class and Megillet Esther, Le'ilu Nishmat, for the elevation of the Neshama of what Laura calls her Queen Esther. This is Yocheved, Bas Yechiel Avram, also known to the world as Esther Pollard, the wife of Jonathan Pollard, who tragically recently passed away. I don't usually do this, but in honor of Esther Pollard and everything she stood for, and what she meant to so many people, I'm gonna take a few minutes, or maybe a minute of your time, to share what her sister Laura wrote. In Laura's view, and I think many would agree with this, the Jewish community worldwide recognized Esther as a stateswoman, a scholar, In Laura's words, a queen, a lioness, and a very devoted Aisha Schayel to her beloved husband, Jonathan Pollard. Laura wrote to me that she felt that Esther was like a mora or a teacher, a guide and an inspiration for her whole family. She was a very spiritual and holy person, says Laura, who generously shared with her siblings, her friends, and anybody who would listen what she learned. Now, I know Laura's watching, and I just want to say it's so interesting that you wrote, that your sister shared with you many books, but one of her favorite books was Eretz Yisrael in the Parsha. Well, how could you have known that today's class is going to have a special focus on, you guessed it, Eretz Yisrael, although the miracle of Purim took place in faraway Persia. You also mentioned that she was generous in the giving of tzedakah and scrupulous with her miser. And she was passionate about the mitzvah of writing sifre Torah. And how could you have known that today's lesson is actually going to focus on a fascinating detail, a mitzvah that can only be fulfilled with the Sefer Torah. She commissioned several sifritor Torah and zchut of her husband Jonathan, and, in Laura's words, she lost a loving sister, a steadfast friend, and a spiritual guide. May the neshama of Esther be bound up in the bond of life, and may the mishpacha, only no simches mei Hashem, give Jonathan many happy and long years to be able to continue to live in the Holy Land of Eretz Yisrael. And may we all meet there soon with the coming of Mashiach b'mheira. Ubi amenu, Amen. And so, with no further ado, good afternoon, Villette. Thank you for popping up on the screen. I just want to remind everybody that if you have questions during the course of today's delivery, you can pose them in real time on YouTube. I don't see Facebook, but I will see YouTube. And you can pose them by simply... Going to the chat that's found in the live stream. And I will try to keep looking. And to the best of my ability, try to keep answering. Let me just get all my books open here. You know, I'm like a very booky guy. Because uh, I don't make this up. It's coming from the good books. There is one tiny detail I want to add today that doesn't say anywhere, and I'm going to make sure to tell you what that is, just so you know that it might not be accurate. It's what seems to me. A final preface, I've mentioned this time and again. These classes do stand on their own. That is to say, if you're joining for the first time live or on replay, Keep listening, you'll learn a lot of amazing things. It'll change the way you observe Purim, the way you appreciate these festivities. I'm absolutely certain of that. At the same time, you have to know that this is a continuation. And much of what we will talk about today is built on things that I've shared in the past episodes, especially the last couple of episodes. And the only way one can really appreciate the full profundity and messaging is by learning as they say, ganza Megillah, the entirety of this scroll, but especially the last couple of lessons directly flow into what we'll be speaking about today. And that's where I'll begin. We are going to be studying verses 16, 17, 18, and 19 today. And there is a verse or a phrase, a biblical phrase, which has appeared multiple times, and we spent a lot of time discussing, elaborating, and explaining it in the previous episode. In fact, it was a major focus of the previous episode. The same phrase shows up in today's class or episode, and it's very different, and perhaps very much the same. The verse is, uvabiza, Loi sholchu es yadam. And they took none of the spoils. That is to say, the spoils of war. Now, as noted in the previous episodes, this is really fascinating because when the edict was issued, it stated clearly, v'shlolem lavoyz, spoils were to be taken. Well, if spoils were to be taken, Why didn't they take the spoils? A primary thrust of the thesis previously delivered is that Mordechai did this in view of the reality that the Jewish people's favor in the king's eyes was, shall we say, tenuous. They weren't really assured of anything. Even after the miracle and the words of the Talmud, Akateh, Avdeh, We still remain exilically dispersed. And we were still, at least on the surface, at the whims of a a madman. A monarch who couldn't make up his mind. Now, the truth is that we're always in Hashem's hands. But at the same time, as we've learned in the series on the Shara Betochen, Live With Certainty, yeah, I recommend that. We also have discovered that whilst we rely on Hashem, we're required to take every possible effort to succeed. So relying on God does not mean relying on miracles. Mardochai knows this. He says the prudent thing is to leave the spoils aside. Let the king see that we didn't overreach Let it be demonstrable for all peoples. This was only about our life, not about the money. This is important because it frames the story of the Megillah in its appropriate reality. The reality is that every step of the way was miraculous. No, we weren't freed of the shackles of exile. We weren't actually fully liberated. That's what made the miracle so different. At the same time, so remarkable. But this was discussed previously. In the verse we study today, there's no way we can understand it in that fashion. Let's take a look inside. I always encourage people to look inside. Megillot Esther is Megillat Esther is Megillot Esther. Whether you're reading it in Hebrew. English, French, Spanish. I don't know if people can still watch in Russia. But wh- wherever you are, and whatever language you're reading Megillah Esther in, and if you don't have a Megillah in front of you, Google it. I mean, there's, it, they're, they're, they're available. It's not hard to be able to follow along in a text. So the text in verse 16 is, after we've discussed the story of the Jewish peoples rising up to defend themselves in Shushan, we return now to the rest of the king's provinces. V'sha'or <inaudible> ha What about everybody else? They weren't in communication. WhatsApp was down. The internet wasn't working 2,500 years ago. How did the message get out to 127 provinces? You know, we learned that in a bunch of episodes back in something called the Persian Pony Express. The Persian Empire had the most remarkable ancient pardon me, system in the ancient world for getting news out quickly. But it isn't as if Mordechai could be in touch in real time. He wasn't like tweeting or sending text messages. So the edict went out to 127 provinces, but specific instructions couldn't be given. How is it that incredibly they ended up doing Exactly the same thing. asher Medina Samelech, the rest of the Jewish people, the ones who were living in the far and wide empire that was called Persia in the time. Nikalu al they congregated, they got together, and they stood up for their lives. me and they wanted to. Relieve themselves or find relief from their enemies. So, they went ahead and they took out their foes. They killed a lot of enemies. Around the Persian Empire, the number of casualties was olaf, 75,000. But, despite the fact that they killed a lot of bad people. But they didn't, so to speak, Send their hand forth, or take any of the spoils. That's what the verse says. And the question, obviously, is why didn't they? Now I have to share with you that the Gemara in Meseches Megillah has a discussion about: Do we know if the Megillah was written beruah hakodesh? Do we know if this was an inspired work or just somebody recording history? Of course we believe it's a part of the Jewish Bible. Of course it's inspired. It's scripture. How do we know? So the Gemara answers a, a, a series of different proofs of how we might know. And one of the answers, one of the approaches, is attributed to the sage whose name was Rabbi Yossi ben Durmaskis. Rabbi Yossi ben Durmaskis said, Eimer, Esther, the book of Esther was certainly said with the Holy Spirit. Shenemar, for it is written, They didn't take any of the spoils. That's on Daf Zayin, Amud Aleph. Now, it's, it's uh, pretty clear that the people who lived far away weren't in communication with Mordechai and Esther. How did they know? How could you make a blanket statement like that? We didn't take the spoils. And the fact that Mordechai and Esther were prepared to write that indicates that, well, they knew. They were just aware. Now, the Gemara goes on to question or challenge every one of these proofs. All of them are more or less refuted with the exception of one. This is not the time or place for demonstrating that Megillat Esther is written with Ruach HaKodesh. I'm just going to say that the Gemara says, Dilma, pristikei shadur. Maybe they send messages or letters. Now. It's a little bit remote that every single place sent a message or a letter. And every single community, wherever there was Jewish people who defended themselves, everybody managed to get the message to Mordecai and Esther. We didn't take anything. Naturally, Rabbi Yisrael ben approach seems to make a lot of sense. The Gemara's point is, it isn't ironclad. True, it's logical, it makes sense, yet it's not beyond suspicion. For lack of better terminology, it's like uh, when you want to get a conviction in a secular court, it has to be beyond reasonable doubt. The Gemara seems to believe that this is a reasonable doubt. And as such, not ironclad. can't be accepted as a proof. Now, the Gemara doesn't say this, and this is just little me, and I could be 100% wrong. But I'd like to suggest that what we can understand from the Gemara is, not only did Mordechai and Esther know what they did, but maybe somehow they knew what they were supposed to do. Because it isn't the instructions they were given. And as we learned many an episode ago, there wouldn't have been time for Mordecai to get the message out. It was down to the wire. This is a very big empire. It spanned an enormous amount of space. And to get the message out in time, well, would have been just enough for them to get the message in time. The message says, take the spoils. You know, when there's money to be made, most people will seize the opportunity. It says it in the edict, black and white. Why wouldn't they? Clearly, somehow, they were on the same page. But if the page was, the king is fickle, He might change his mind. We need to still curry favor and do within the frame of natural means what will lead us to the safest place, although ultimately it's all in Hashem's hands. How do the faraway people know that? Furthermore, how would Ahasuerus know it? What difference would it make to him? When it came to Shushan City, or the capital, they reported to Ahasuerus the very next day, and then they asked for an addition and an extension. And they said to him, King Ahasuerus, we didn't take anything. In fact, we gave it all to your coffers. It's very difficult to imagine that they would have sent to the royal coffers from very, very far away places and that it would make a difference. Even if they had sent it, it wouldn't have gotten there till months or maybe a year later. Who would have brought it? How would they get the message through to the highest echelons that a contribution was made? in the royal treasury, it just doesn't seem to add up. And yet, the Megillah is clear in all the provinces, throughout the entirety of the empire, nobody took any spoils. Well, perhaps this is the answer. And again, I'm just suggesting. Rabbeinu Bechaya II, that is Rabbeinu Bechaya ben Osher, a 12th century sage or scholar, 13th century, not to be confused with the 9th and 10th century sage who wrote the Sha'ar In his commentary on the Chumash, the Pentateuch, and the book of Exodus, and the book of Sefer Shmot, chapter 17, verse 16, the Torah there narrates the battle against Amalek and Hashem's response. Hashem says to Moshe, I raise my hand, proverbially, taking an oath that my chair, throne, will not be complete until Amalek is destroyed. So obviously a chair or a a throne is a euphemism. But that's where the king settles in. In other words, Hashem's presence will not be fully revealed in this world. God will not fully lift the fog, the obfuscation, the, the camouflage and the smoke screen until Amalek, arch evil, no longer exists in the flesh. We'll talk about this Much later, but I want to share with you the following. Rabbeinu B'chayi wrote, Hashem Yisbaruch Mazbiyah l'chol melech Yisrael. Hashem Yisbaruch could be speaking to every future king of Israel. Saying to him, Anybody sheyeshev al kisei malchut, whoever will sit, whoever will occupy the throne of Israel. Sheyeshe melchomla Hashem ba'amalik that he should be prosecuting the battle against evil. Evil that's not redeemable. A malik. Says Rebbeinu Be'er, what we can see, understood, what, what we can appreciate from this. Ki that this battle and its booty, ha yihia all of it, will be proscribed. And B'nai is saying a remarkable thing because the scripture doesn't say this. B'nai B'nai sees the euphemism, the metaphor of the throne to refer not just to the presence of Hashem, which is found in multiple places, and that's a story for a different lecture, but he says this is also referring to, if you will poetically, the throne of the Jewish people. And the monarch who will occupy that throne. He will not be able to establish his kingdom. And he will always have the mandate and the sacred responsibility of prosecuting the war against Amalek. But it has to be done. La Hashem. Melchama la Hashem This is a battle that is only to fulfill a higher calling. An example or a symptom of a battle fought or prosecuted for a higher calling is that no spoils are taken. Now it's interesting to note, in the commentaries of the Rebbeinu by that's published by the Moshe Cook, Rav Kook, the, commentaries, the commentator notes here that this idea doesn't say in any other source. It isn't stated in any of the Midrashim. None of the other Rishonim actually state this. They suggest that there is a Mechilta in which the Mechilta quotes a teaching of the Tanayak sage, Rebelozar Lazar Hamodoi, who said, Nishba, and I'm quoting, Nishba ha Baruch Hu God, if you will, obviously a parable, a euphemism, a metaphor, swore by... The throne of God's glory. If I leave progeny of a malek in this world, and he goes on to say, they shouldn't say, "Hey, that animal, that camel, used to belong to a malek." He suggests, then, you can see that there is an isr that this would actually be proscribed altogether. Now, I shared with you in a previous episode there's a fascinating rumination from the Rebbe where he suggests that this applies specifically to animals and not to inanimate objects like wood, precious metals, currency, or anything like that. So, it's really not so simple. But there's certainly this idea. It's not, it's not at all, shall we say, binding. It's not really halachic. But Rabbi Nobachaya still promulgates this idea that battle against a molek means destroying a molek and not him from any spoils. In the words of the Bechaya, the Yi HaKoe Everything will be for God. And he says something amazing. This is why King Saul suffered consequence. And there is a direct link between the generation of King Saul. And his great 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 grandson, Mordechai. The Yoda Mordechai, Kishol Zakeni Nenesh Peinish Gadol. Mordechai knew that his ancestor, King Saul, suffered terribly. And was catastrophically punished because he failed. <speaking in Hebrew> he lost. He didn't remove Amalek completely, his own legacy was incomplete. And what happened was that just as he didn't remove the throne of Amalek, his throne collapses. Tragically, he and his son, Yehonatan, were killed in battle. His throne collapses. David Amalek rises instead. Says the Bahayah, O nizhar Mordechai, bedavar shalei mishlal haman. That's why Mordechai was so careful. He said, We don't want this. There's a deep history here. Jewish history does repeat itself. Let's not make the same mistake. Shola HaMelech wanted to utilize the spoils for a holy purpose. It didn't end well. Let's leave everything behind. Take nothing from Amalek. Perform the mitzvah and leave it at that. And this is the meaning of Timcha es Zecher Amalek. Nothing should be left. Rather, we should remove our hand or possession from it entirely. So this Rabenu Bechaya really perhaps can help us understand how this was something that either Mordechai must have communicated or Somehow the Jewish people understood that was the right thing to do. At any rate, around the world, in every part of the kingdom, the battle unfolded, the spoils were not taken. We will come back to this idea of Amalek and its generational impact at the end of the the presentation today. Now let's move into the verse. Let's try to study the actual verse itself. I, I, thought, I thought this was an important way to introduce what we're saying because there isn't a division between the challenges and the battles fought in Shushan led by Mordechai and what happened in the rest of the provinces. There is a cohesion here. And despite the cohesion, despite the being on the same page, we're going to see things ended differently. And there's celebration in different places on different days. And that's quite unusual. In fact, it's unmatched or unreplicated. There is nothing else quite like it in the entirety of the rubric of Torah observance known as Yiddishkeit. So let's look at the verse. Verse 16 Vishor HaYehudim. The rest of the Jewish people. Now, when we speak of the rest of the Jewish people rising up to defend themselves, it's very important to note that this has already been mentioned in verse 2, 3, and 5 of the same chapter. If you go back to verse 2, it says, <laughs> The Jewish people congregated in their cities, behold Medina's Hamelakashwaresh and all the provinces that were under the tutelage of King Achashwarash. And they did so, lishloyach Yod to send forth a hand, so to speak, against those who sought their end evil, bad stuff. Furthermore, we're told, nobody stood before them because everybody was afraid. And then in verse 3, we hear about not only the fear of the masses, but the fear of the intelligentsia, the clerisy, the upper echelons of government and the defense apparatus. And in verse 5, the Jewish people prosecuted these battles. They smote their enemies. It was a makas cherev v'hedeg v'abdom. It was the sword. They put them to death and annihilated them. So we've already heard about this and yet the Megillah feels it's important to repeat this all over again. With slight variations. And the question, of course, what's the Megillah trying to teach us? Why do we have to return to the rest of the empire after having scoped out What unfolded in Shushan City. Clearly. What we learned about in Shushan. Will now give us fresh insight. A new perspective. On how things went. Across the empire. The question of course. Is what is that? Well. To quote. Masas Moshe. The commentary of. Rabbeinu Moshe Alshech. Achar. Omroi, mashu After having conveyed to us what they needed to do in Shushan, and this was different than everywhere else, nitan das Shushan that an additional edict, a royal order, had been issued for another day in Shushan. Now he says, armed with this information. Let's return to how things unfolded in the rest of the empire. How did they unfold? Differently? They didn't seem to need another day. That only happened in Shushan. We learned lots about that in the previous episodes. What is the Megillah trying to tell us? So, I would like to suggest that the only way to properly understand the verse that we're learning and the subsequent verses is by taking a look at the commentary of Nachmanides, Rabbeinu Moshe ben Nachman, on Mesechet Megillah. Nachmanides, Ramban did not write commentary on the Megillah, but he does write novelly on the Talmud. And in the beginning of Mesechet Megillah, he opens with an overarching commentary. He says... You know, we learn in the beginning of this tractate that there's a difference between how Purim, or when Purim, I should say, is celebrated in walled cities and open cities. So what's that about? In Ramban's words. I'm quite astonished. Wrote Nachmanides. What was the reason they saw this fit? Why would we make a distinction, a separation amongst Jewish people in this mitzvah? Now, to be fair, there's a prohibition in the Torah called Lotid do That means one is not supposed to make different elements of Jewish people. You're not supposed to have different ways to do things. We're supposed to be on the same page. <laughs> I know, you must be listening to me. I'm like wondering, what in heaven is this rabbi talking about? We know of so many different flavors, shapes, sizes, and colors of Torah Judaism. And here we're talking about doing everything in uniformity. Well, the thing is this. The Rambam, Maimonides, in his introduction to Mishnah Torah, speaks about the importance of having one common ruling for all under the tutelage of the Jewish Ecclesiastical High Court, referred to in Hebrew as Sanhedrin. So here's the problem. At a certain point, we no longer had one central ruling body. We didn't have a Sanhedrin. Furthermore, Jewish people lived in far-flung places and were incommunicado for centuries on end. As such, in the Rambam's words, quoting our sages, "Nahara, nahara upashta." Each river, and its tributaries, as they flow forth. What happened is that the Jewish people had different centers of Jewish life. And so, as the Gemara says, "Ba'atra derav k'irav." If you were living in the province where Rav was the greatest Torah leader, you followed Rav. Ba'atra de Shmuel, however, if you lived in a different part of Babylon, the province in which Shmuel was the acclaimed Torah leader, then you followed Shmuel. To be sure, the arguments of, or disputes of Rav and Shmuel were eventually more or less resolved, but there are different customs and different rulings. True, we have a Shulchan Aruch, a code of Jewish law, and yet the code of Jewish law is comprised of a proverbial table and its cover. The Bet Yosef, Rabbeinu Yosef Karo, the author of the Shulchan Aruch, rules in the manner that the Sephardic tradition ruled. And the Ramo, Rabbeinu Moshe Isilish, from the land of Poland, or Ashkenaz, ruled as the Ashkenaz Jewish people had become accustomed. And the Shulchan Aruch contains both. And until this very day, there are different customs. Perhaps none less pronounced than the eating of rice during the holiday called Pesach. Where large swaths of Sephardic Jews eat rice, and no Ashkenazic Jews do. And that's a a subject in and of itself. So the thing is this, it wasn't possible. We simply weren't in touch. When Mashiach will come, we'll all be back on the same page. But this, is during the time of the Sanhedrin. The Anche Knesset have barely begun to rise and pursue the reclamation of the former glory of the Jewish people. Why would they do this? So Ramban says, in fairness, it's not really an issue of lotid godadu because loted godadu is, is something that is violated when you have two bate dinim, two courts of law who rule differently in the same place and that makes classes segments groupings or division so we don't do that but nonetheless even if it's not a violation of lot to go to do even if to be different places doing different things even as such it doesn't seem to be according to the spirit of judaism if it doesn't violate its letter of the law Hechan Matsinuba Torah. Where do we find in Torah mitzvot chaluka bekach? A mitzvah that's done in different ways. Va Torah Amra. The Torah itself, the Pentateuch, expresses this idea Torah achat, mishpat echad, one Torah, one rule, one law that unites us all. It matters not what race, creed, color, or ethnicity we come from, as long as we're halachically Jewish, and that means our mother's Jewish, or we converted according to halacha. And that's the end of the description. Nothing else matters. And yet, we should be observing Yiddishkeit in the same way. Why would our sages make a division between Shushanite Jews and people living in open areas? It does sound rather strange. Ramban develops this thesis a little bit more and he describes the distinction. He offers a possible resolution. He says the miracles occurred on different days. He says, uh, I can tell you this is an answer that tastes good to me. He says, "Ain tamza matok. It's not really sweet. It's not tov beinai. It doesn't quite answer the question. At least not in my eyes. Because he says, even if they did another battle in Shushan, nonetheless, Iker the primary miracle, even in Shushan city, was on Yom Yud Gimel. They had another day to mop up to go after every last one. But that doesn't mean the miracle didn't happen on the 13th. So everybody should be celebrating Purim on the same day. Roy She'e Elohim Yomtev. Yomtef, the 14th of Adar, should have been celebrated all. Im soil with all of Israel. Even though it's true that in the first year, perhaps the Shushanite Jews didn't have time to celebrate until the 15th, the year after, everybody should have affixed the commemoration to the same day. You'd think our sages would have pursued that path. But they didn't question is why. Nachmanides says, Ki When I began to ruminate, and look deeply into the scriptural verses, yofa, Then suddenly everything began to make sense to me. He says, It is clear, Shabizmane Shalnesze, that at the time of the miracle of Purim, and listen to what Ramban is about to say. You never heard this in Hebrew school. And it's unlikely you ever heard your rabbi speak about it. This isn't mentioned in many places, but Ramban is a source, ironclad. He says, At the time of the story of Purim, the Jewish people had already experienced a reflowering of nationhood. In fact, he says, most of the Jewish people who were going to return to Israel, many opted, unfortunately, not to return to Israel, but the Jewish people who would return to Israel, for the most part, had already returned Berishion, under the administration of the Koresh monarchy. Jewish people were living in Israel. Much like today. So what about the business of Haman saying there's this nation and they're strewn and scattered about? Doesn't sound like they were unified or living in one place. Says Dramban, it's true. Haman did say that. Mikom, uncle, Ancheik Nese Sagdoyla, Imroi Yisrael. the men of the great assembly. That's the reorganizing of the Sanhedrin. The people who brought Yiddishkeit back to its full glory. And most of the Jewish people were living Ba'aretz. I believe that as of last year, most of the world's Jewish people live in the land of Israel. We only have about 13 million Jews, Ken yerbu, B'li Ein and I'm pretty sure that the number of Jewish people in the land of Israel today is reaching B'li Ein 7 million it's most of the jewish people living in israel ramban says it's hard to believe but there weren't that many who joined them afterwards we speak about the second coming of the nationhood brought about through ezra but actually there weren't that many people that came along with ezra we have the numbers it's like remnants Less than 100,000. When Achashverosh made his command, there were Jewish people living all over the world, much like there are Jewish people living all over the world today. And these were Jewish people who had no security, no safety. They weren't living in walled cities. Furthermore, he says, even in the land of Israel, the word *mefuzar* is related to the idea of *parazim*. *Parazos* means unwalled, unprotected. So there was no wall around, and as such, everybody living in an open city was in *sakonagdela*. If you can close the gates and take refuge behind a great big wall, you can stave off an onslaught. But if there are no walls and no way to keep the monsters out, how are you going to survive? What will stop? What will stop the enemies from coming in? Yerushalayim may have been walled. Most cities weren't, though. And this was the issue. This was the problem. They really were between a rock and a hard spot. They had no refuge, and they had no security. We prayed to God, and we had a Jewish Defense League set up, trying to defend ourselves. When a miracle happened, And those Jews who were vulnerable, were saved. They made a mishta and a simcha. And the Ramban notes that in the first year, the big celebrations were held primarily in the open cities. Now in Shushan, they had another set of miracles. We learned about that in the previous episode. But in Shushan, that was only the first year. Laachar Mikain says Nachmanides, b'shonim ha baot in future years, Omdu haprozim vinohg ma'atsman la'asot yomar ba'asar simchomishte viyomtov. The people who lived in those open areas who were so vulnerable, who didn't imagine they would survive, they rose up and made a holiday. Hamukhov and le'asaklum. But those who lived in secure places, they didn't feel the miracle. And so they didn't make much of a holiday because to them, the miracle was no longer, in no way as great as the miracle experienced by those who were present. Those who were living in open cities, those who were vulnerable, they had a real sakona. They felt that they have been delivered miraculously. Those who lived in areas that were walled and taken care of, They didn't feel the same way. So it's only Mordechai who comes and says, No, 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 no. This is a good thing. It's the right thing to do. We all should be celebrating Purim. Purim is not just about the deliverance that happened in that particular time from those particular individuals. This is an important moment in the sweep of Jewish history. This is a paradigm shift. It represents the age-old battle against Amalek. It is the time when we, the Jewish people, reaccepted upon ourselves the Torah, as it were, and it's a major moment in Jewish history that must be celebrated until the end of time. And the Gemara tells us that even when Mashiach comes, Purim will be celebrated. So, so this was a novelty. And because the miracle or deliverance was so radically different, They were actually celebrating two different things. And that, says Nachmanides, is why there was a distinction between Purim celebrated in open cities and Purim celebrated in Shushan or walled cities, as we'll elaborate to see the connection between Shushan and a place like Yerushalayim. So at any rate, Nachmanides is offering us quite a phenomenal insight into... What's, what's happening here? And without Nachmanides, you, you wouldn't have this clarity that, 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 that the only way you can appreciate what happened in the open cities or in the rest of the empire is after hearing the story of Shushan. And now we can understand why it is that we are revisiting the narrative of the miracle. So following along these ideas, we have this concept that at this point the Shushanite people were not nearly in as much danger as the Maimon Mordechai says. You want to understand verse 16? Maimon Mordechai says, sure. As I said, we learned in the Ramban, the Maim of They didn't have a wall elsewhere. They were in tremendous mortal danger. Lest the enemies come from other cities, they could have mustered from all across the, the other cities or provinces and gone on a rampage, a pogrom, wiping out shtetl after shtetl, wherever Jewish people were living. Tragically, we saw exactly this happen in the year 1648 in a little country known as Ukraine by the arch-evil monster Hitler of the 17th century known as Bogdan Khmelnytsky. Yeah, there's a town named after him till today. And right in the middle is a big statue of the national hero, Bogdan Khmelnytsky. I know. I was there 29 years ago, and I saw it myself. So when we talk about open shtetlach, when we talk about unprotected Jewish communities, it's not hard for us to imagine what this might have meant. Leihoyo misugolim says the maimon Mordechai. They didn't have a winged or a prayer. No way to, to be victorious. You have a base, you have a fort, you can organize yourself. You can fend off an attack. You might even be able to go on an offensive. But you have no home base no place to operate out of. It was futile. Resistance was futile. The writing was on the wall. They were doomed. Furthermore, the Maimon Mordechai and the Teretumim point out That in those cities, there were no official arms of the national government, the federal government. There were no garrison of, of soldiers, of Persia's official defense force. It's not like you have army bases in every little city. Even until today, there are certain places where we have an army center, a military center. There weren't garrisons. There weren't forts. So who's going to protect them? Yes, it's true. In that edict it said that the Jewish people could defend themselves and that the local army, the defense agencies, would assist. Who are you going to call? Who are you going to ask? There were soldiers around. And they were ready to be massacred on the 13th of other. And they said, oh, you can defend yourself. Great. With what? Small bands of Jews in open, vulnerable places. How would they defend themselves? In those places, there were no officers. There was no federal army. No national defense force. And Across the empire. There were 75,000 neo Nazis. Amalekites. These Amalekites, in the words of the Amlois, they wanted to annihilate. Anybody who might even be called Jewish. Sound familiar? They wanted to prosecute the Jew, Amasha <inaudible> to wreak vengeance on the Jewish community for what had happened to Haman and his children, Amalekite <inaudible> royalty. So, this is the situation the situation that we didn't realize or understand until we talked about what was so special and unique about Shushan. And until we learned that in Shushan, Shushan capital was different from Shushan city and the capital district had walls and the Jewish people sought refuge there and the monsters, the Amalekites, neo-Nazis came after them and they did a battle. Yeah, but what happened everywhere else? There was a lot of bad people. In modern vernacular, a lot of Nazis. What do they do about that? And I want to point out that the Targum, not the Targum Sheni, the Targum emphasizes in these verses that the Jewish people rose up against and killed people who were Amalekites, arch-evil sworn enemies of the Jewish people who sought genocide against us. Nothing less. They wouldn't be sated until every last Jew was murdered reign. That's what we faced. As we read previously, that they killed in Shushan Shalish Ish. The Targum says, "Beshushan Tlas me Debate Amalek from the house of Amalek." You take a look in verse sixteen. Shivin Vahamshas alfin seventy five thousand mi debate amalek from the house of amalek. Verse seventeen. Biyom shlosha asar on the thirteenth day Shadar, dar v'noach barbasar and respite on the fourteenth day. Va'asa osa yom mishte simcha The targum says the thirteenth day of Adar, and here the Targum adds five words: They killed in self-defense the seed of Amalek. and then returning back to the actual scripture: So this is Amalekites. How did this happen? Like, like. How did the miracle actually unfold? Ah, we never really talked about that. So the Aalshech says, Let us take a careful look at the verse and see how the verse unfolds. You know what? Before I'm going to go to the Al-Sheikh, I'm going to share with you the words of the Vilna But actually, to me, I couldn't understand what the Vilna was saying until I actually studied the Aalshech. Then, then the Vil- what the Vilna Gaan said so says, Aha, so that's what he means. The Vilni-Gohan says in his commentary, in verse 16, he says, the first thing, Nikalu, they gather, the Omed, that's a new word. We never came across this before. It never said Omed al Nafshim. So the Vilni says, Pirush. it means, Ba'achtuz gomur. the first key to our success, the first key to being the recipients of Hashem's remarkable blessings and the stunning victory that was granted to us, was unity. How about that? Unity. Total unity. In the words of the Dina who says, Nikhalu, they gathered, they congregated, lihiot to be unified. How do you define unified? You have to do whatever I say, right? That's unity. I'll force you to be unified with me. Wrong, says the Dine of Shekol nefesh Unity means that you seek to save the other. That you think, not of yourself, but put somebody else first. That, my dear friends, is the definition of unity. And he says, this also includes the They also all did tshuva; they returned to Hashem. He says that's why it says al nafsham because This is about the nefesh. The nefesh is soiled by virtue of sin. They cleansed al Ah, now that we are unified. And now that we are cleansed of sin. And this fits so beautifully into what the Alter Rebbe says in Likuti Morim Tanya in the 32nd chapter where he speaks about the concept of Ahavat Yisrael. And he says it can only be experienced. Gufam ikar. Those are the words of the Alter Rebbe that opens the 32nd chapter, Pedic lev He says you have to place dominance on nefesh, not on guf on the spiritual reality, not on the material reality. Materialism divides us. Spirituality can unite us. To do tshuva means that you start to look at life differently. It's not about material possessions. It's not about material success. It's not about material fame, fortune, or pleasure. It's about spirituality. It's about answering to a higher calling. It's about being uplifted to soar on the wings of holiness and spirituality, to come closer to Hashem, when you make nafsham iker. So, when the Jewish people united as such, going back to the words of the Vilna "Al nafsham shema yavayu aleim lest they'll be attacked." Venoach. But the next verse says, it, "But it was respite." Kilebo. They didn't come. They waited for an attack. It didn't come. They banded together. They swore allegiance to each other. They would fight to the last drop of blood to save the other. And the attack never came. They killed their enemies. says the Vilni Pirosh, That means the enemies didn't come. That's why they went after their enemies. What does that mean? So this idea is really fully developed in the writings that precede the Vilna In the Alshech, in the Masa Smoisheh, the Alshech explains this in an amazing way. He said, this is what happened. In Shushan, there was an open edict that said, kill the Jews. We learned about this. Then a new edict came and it said, Jews defend yourselves. Which one is it going to be? That was the subject of the previous two episodes. Shushan made for a unique challenge, an extra difficult situation. In the other places, what did it say? I shouldn't whisper. Okay, I'll try not to whisper. So what happened in the other cities? Says the Alsheikh. When they wrote that first letter, it didn't say that we're going to annihilate the Jews on this day. It said, save the date. Big stuff coming down the pike. We're going to be rid of all our enemies. A better world is about to dawn. June rain. but that was unspoken and then everything is now turned inside out there is an open edict the open edict doesn't say be ready, a better day the open edict says Jewish people rise up and defend yourselves that the Jewish people will wreak vengeance exact revenge from their enemies As we read previously, great detail. Says the Alshech, but the people living in little Shtetlach, people who didn't have numbers, or weapons, or training, or a fort, they didn't know what's going to happen. Nistapku. They said, how's this going to work? Imukumu me'atzmam. Are we supposed to just rise up and just attack people? Seek out our enemies? How we do this? Or... Maybe we just have to gather together because we can defend ourselves. So we have to find some way. Maybe they went to a shul, maybe they went to a, a community center, they went to some place where the Jewish people could band together and keep the, 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 the vulnerable members of the population behind those who were somewhat able to defend themselves. And we're going to defend ourselves and pray to Hashem. Ach. They initially thought that if nobody attacks us, we're not attacking anybody. We're just going to defend ourselves. Because after all, it just says we can defend ourselves. It says we can exact vengeance, but does that really mean to go on an offensive defense? They were terrified of their enemies. If they all gathered together, they could overrun us, inundate us. Because there have always been more anti-Semites than Semites. Unfortunately, numbers are not on our side. And we weren't necessarily known for brawn either. We tend to do better at the debating team, then jousting. So, Rabbim, they are many. And the Jewish people are not necessarily the strongest of soldiers. So what happens now? They didn't know what to do. So they began to investigate. What did they discover? They had to find out Was everybody really afraid of the Jewish people? Now, had all of our enemies actually gone back into their holes, was it no longer politically correct to be an anti-Semite? It used to be. All the popular music was anti-Semitic. All popular sentiment was anti-Semitic. It was considered to be a moral thing to stamp out a Jew. The Jews were the source of all the world's problems. You know, much like the world says about Israel. Israel. The Jew amongst the nations today. The They said, So let's get together. Let's at least be unified. We'll see what happens. If they will be stout of heart and attack us, then with God's help, by God's grace, we'll be able to defend ourselves. If we see that everything, the winds of change have swept across the entirety of the landscape and it's a different world today, then in that case, then we'll see if we can maybe launch an offensive defense against the neo-Nazi headquarters. And that, says al Alshech, is why verse 16 begins with the words, Nikhalu. The first thing they did the Jewish people. And what was the purpose of Nikalu? They came together. He called them the Achdut. They came together as one, as we discussed. they just tried to save their lives. But then they saw something fascinating. And they saw that all the enemies, all the foes. Weren't rising up. They had relief from their foes. Nobody's going up against the Jewish people. Everybody is suddenly. As we learned earlier in verse 3. In verse 2. Then they said. This is the hand of Hashem. I'll say nay, no. Let us go against our sworn enemies. So, they had respite from their foes, gained relief from their foes, and they went against their enemies. And they wiped out the neo-Nazis. And you see, there's a difference between foes and enemies, Oivim and Seinim. The Al-Sheikh says something which has tragically been true throughout our long and challenging history. He says, Unfortunately, the majority of peoples around us have always been anti-Semitically inclined. It's a tragic, twisted, sickening, terrible reality. But a reality nonetheless. Anti-Semitism has always followed us. It went under the carpet for a little while and it's back with a vengeance. Of course, it's now, shall we say, refurbished. It has mutated. I don't hate Jews. I, I just hate Israel. Israel is the source of all the world's problems. Forget what the Chinese do to the Uyghurs or forget what's going on in Eastern Europe. No, no, no. Israel is the problem. Amnesty International, in the ninth day of a war going on in U- between Ukraine and Russia, what is Amnesty International Headlines? Israeli apartheid. It's been debunked 50 times. There's an Arab who sits on the high court, the Supreme Court of Israel. And so many other examples. The word apartheid is entirely inapplicable. That doesn't matter. Don't confuse people with the facts. They're only too eager to express their Sickening anti-Semitism. It's always been like that. So these foes, they're balieva. They nurse a grudge, a hatred against Jewish people in their hearts. It's just the way it's always been. But then there's the real enemies. So we have fair-weather friends and fair-weather enemies. They're foes. Some of my best friends are Jewish, they might tell you. I don't really like the Jewish people too much. There's good people, by the way. There are many people, not jewish people, who are good people. But there are many, many, many anti-Semites. Not nearly in a way that makes any sense whatsoever. We are a tiny figment of the world's population. Like 1% of the population, not even in Canada. And yet, 76% of racist crimes in the last year alone have been directed against 1% of the population. You think that says something? Hmm. Maybe that should make us look twice. Eh? It's not different in the States. It's worse. And it's probably even worse in South America. It's a fact. An unfortunate fact. But those are just foes. Those aren't frothing at the mouth enemies of the Jewish people who will kill us at a moment's notice. They just don't like us and they're biased towards us and they will always judge us by the color of our hat they will always look at us by the swatch of our suit or our dna they won't give us a fair shake but that's always unfortunately a reality we jewish people have had to contend with but the sworn enemies this says the Alshech. This is Edom. This is Amalek. Edom. The family of Esau. What later became the Roman Empire. The Amalekites. Shetivom Lahoitzi ha'eva el They are the ones who act on their bias. They are the ones who are only too quick to gleefully murder Jewish people. You know, the kind of murder that was directed against us throughout Eastern Europe by Hitler's many, many willing executioners. Many nations. They weren't, if you will, brainwashed by Nazi propaganda. That was in Germany. Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Ukraine. Czechoslovakia, mass murders overseen by Nazis, tragically carried out by locals. This is a historic fact. It's a stubborn fact. A lot of people don't want to talk about it. It makes people uncomfortable. Let's sweep that under the carpet, they say. It's not important. Oh, but it is, because the facts don't lie. Those are the facts. It wasn't different then. And so the Jewish people didn't go against their foes. The winds had changed. It was no longer politically correct to be an anti-Semite. But the neo-Nazis don't care. Extreme fascists remain sworn to Israel's destruction, even if it comes at the price of their very life. That is how irrational, that is how extraordinary and extreme their hatred for us is. And it is them that the Jewish people went after, the Amalekites. And this is what the Targum calls clearly, Zaris the Amalek. So now you have an understanding of what we're dealing with here. We couldn't have appreciated this before hearing the story of Shushan. Only after hearing the story of Shushan can we come to appreciate the miracles that occurred for the rest of the nation across. The large kingdom of Ahashverosh. At this point, let me add to you another fascinating little detail. And that is that the Mimer Mordechai says, Not only did those foes stand down, but in fact, V'no'yach me could mean ha'oi v'me'atzram o'zru Yisrael. There was a wave of philo-Semitism that swept across the Persian Empire. People said, what do you want for the Jewish people? All of a sudden, we were being helped by our former foes. Ha'oivim <inaudible> atzvu, says the nosnu minuchali Yisrael, the enemies themselves gave respite and relief. And so this was extraordinary. A total turnabout. The foes of the Jewish people who would quickly have jumped into the fray had things gone otherwise, were suddenly thinking very differently. And the fascists, they were destroyed. That's the miracle across the empire. And as I said in the outset, somehow they knew. And they didn't take the spoils. They said, this is an Amalekite battle. This is, this is a confrontation with evil itself. It's not an ordinary struggle. This is not about typical self-determination. This is something that touches on the very core of an evil that will never rest and never be quiet. And so at this point, when Am Yisrael was able to overcome all of that, aha, now we understand what happened. Now we can appreciate so the question then becomes, in verse 17, it says, we emphasize, This happened on the 13th day. But the real respite and relief only came by our boss on the 14th day. It was made into a day of rejoicing. Why didn't they rejoice on the day they were saved? Why did they wait for the next day? Says Rabbeinu Mashal Sheikh, I'll tell you why. He says, Because Meharoi, it would seem, They try to destroy us. We destroyed them. Let's celebrate. No, not so simple. Am um, Yisrael was not at rest. Then they started to really worry. We just wiped out the bulk of our enemies. What would the day after tomorrow look like? What's the future going to bring? You can't fight the whole world. They said this day will bring us even bigger troubles. We had no choice, but who knows what the future will bring now. And so Daigas Libam, the worry, the anxiety was not removed from their hearts. They weren't in a celebratory mood. They said, who knows? Im Yahim Livov Adam, who knows who will now seek vengeance. And so the next day dawned, and the they woke up in the morning on the 14th and they braced themselves what they were sure would be a vicious counterattack. counter-attack <speaking in Hebrew> to see what had happened <speaking in Hebrew> a terror had fallen upon their enemies oh when they saw that they realized then the hand of Hashem that Hashem had left all their that Hashem had left all their enemies <speaking in Hebrew> So there really wasn't respite. True, there were no battles on the 14th, but there was an anticipation of bad things to come, waiting for that shoe to drop. And when it doesn't happen, they said, aha, now we can celebrate. This idea is also expressed by the Vilni Gorn, although in much shorter prose. He says, ki yud yudgimel on the 13th day, ha'yillahem tzara g'dayla. They had a lot of trouble on their hands. They were still worried. Who knows what happens? Will the shoe drop? The sun set on the 13th. And now, tomorrow has arrived. Nobody stood before them. At that point, they realized that this had been an extraordinary miracle. And so they celebrated, and they thanked Hashem. <laughs> Here's a silly joke, but I'm going to tell it to you anyway, even though I've shared it before. I'm going to share it because it makes it makes a point. So, so this guy is uh, late for a meeting. It's a really important meeting. He's got to he's got to meet these people, and uh, you know business, big business, hinges on how that goes. And he's late. He needs a parking space and he can't find a parking space and he's praying to Hashem. He says, God, give me a parking space. (laughs) I'll do anything. I'll come to Shul every day for a year. Just please give me a parking space. And as he's making this promise to God, suddenly, the car right in front of him, he sees a blinker go on and somebody's pulling out. And he said, forget it, God. I just found the parking space. How often after having been the recipient of Hashem's largest, do we quickly forget? How often do we forget what we faced just a day ago? How often do we forget how afraid we were, how concerned we were, how much anxiety we had expressed? This is the tragedy. It's like the six-day war. Holocaust scenarios being discussed in the media. The Israeli government was busy scouting out mass amounts of graves. They considered turning parks into cemeteries. They were bracing for what they thought might be the end. Miracle, six days? Where's that ever been seen? And people forgot to thank Hashem. They bothered the Rebbe so much. Continue to rail about this. In the months that followed, Hashem has shown us His kindness. But people so quickly forget. There are no atheists in the foxholes. But when you're out, hey, everything's great. It's like the idea that we don't have to create mindfulness about Hashem before we eat. Although, for rabbinic reasons, we do that as well. But according to the Torah, the real mindfulness is after you eat. Not when you're hungry, but when you're sated. That's when you're in a position to forget. As the Torah says in the verses just prior to its instructions about Berchat HaMazon, you feel stout of heart, proud of your accomplishments your achievements, and you forget. You say, I did this. I was wise, intuitive, courageous, brave, focused, and willing to make a sacrifice. So we prevailed. Baloney. You had no chance. It's Hashem's miracles. Am Yisrael, the Jewish people at the time of Purim, didn't forget the next day. They celebrated. They recognized a miracle from Hashem had delivered them. And that's one of the messages that the celebration of Purim is supposed to bring home to us. Now, this went on, according to Nachmanides, as we read, for a while before everybody else caught on. It wasn't till later that Mordechai begins to create a record or set the record straight. But we'll learn about that in our next episode. And so what happens is that in verse 16 and 17 we see how the story is expanded upon we see how that those outside of Shushan had managed to organize themselves despite not having any central authority, really aid or assistance. That 75,000 neo-Nazis sworn enemies of the Jewish people were able to be killed and they abstained from taking any spoils. And that unlike the Jews in Shushan City itself, they gained respite and relief on the very next day. And they celebrated devoting the 14th day to an observance of the great miracles that Hashem had done for them. And now we hear about the day after tomorrow. Verse 18. And what about the Shushanites? I'm glad you asked. And the Jewish people living in Shushan City proper They gathered on the 13th day. And they continued to maintain that same gathering into the 14th day. And they were only able to experience respite That's when there was noyach. The respite happened on the 15th day. And thus, they made that a day of celebration and a day of rejoicing. A day of feasting and celebration of rejoicing, recognizing Hashem's miracles. Now, as the Alshech tells us, that when it came to this 16th, this, this 15th day, he says, they didn't know But the rest of the Jewish people knew until the 15th day, because on the 14th day, as we learned in previous episodes, there was still a battle on hand. Another 300 sworn enemies, fascist Nazis, came to kill the Jewish people. And so they waited to see what would happen on the 15th. Would another shoe drop? The king had only given them one additional day. They saw things were calm. Ah, they saw relief and respite. The typical foes were no longer foes. Instead, they'd become friends. So they made the 15th day into a day of joy. And tomorrow, they couldn't celebrate the 14th day because there was still a battle on hand. Because there was still terror in their hearts on the 15th day they realized that indeed all was quiet on the western front in the words of the Vilna who continues to promulgate the same approach as the Alshech he says in the city of Shushan they were afraid of the upper echelons of government the defense establishment the state department Sworn anti Semites. They always have been. So they're worried about the State Department. They're worried about those diplomats. They were worried about those anti Semitic elements in the armed forces. <laughs> so they had another day. The king granted them, as we learned, another day to defend themselves. And they had to do this. <laughs> this is the king. It's not us because the 14th day wasn't written in the original edict. It only said the 13th day. But that was only the upper echelons where there were still enemies of the Jewish people left. As we see, they killed another 300 Amalekites. And then, on the 15th, when all was quiet, they said, Now we can sing, dance, and rejoice. Now we can celebrate. It's so interesting to note that the celebration of Purim is radically different than the celebration of Hanukkah in the day of its observance. We learn in the Rambam, it says this very, very clearly, that the, the name Hanukkah is actually in a conjunction of the words, Chanu They rested on the, fifth, on the 25th day. The Rambam states, that in the laws of Hanukkah, in the third chapter of the second halacha, that when the Jewish people overwhelmed their enemies and they were victorious, it was on the 25th day of the month of Kislev. And of course, Hanukkah is celebrated on the 25th day of the month. The question is, when did the light the menorah? And here, there's a fascinating dispute between the Rambam and the Meiri and the possibility of a menorah that was lit in the afternoon as well. I think I talked about this in the lecture that I gave on Hanukkah. This is not really relevant to to our our rumination here today but what is relevant is this the framing or distinction between the way the rambam views hanukkah and purim where hanukkah the day of victory was a day of celebration and here it gets pushed off to tomorrow and in shushan it is until the day after tomorrow that the people celebrated that the people were able to thank hashem why in the 30th volume of the HaSichus, the Rebbe explains this in a really fascinating way. Here's a, a gist, just a taste of a thesis and a much longer rumination that's worthy of everybody's study. He says there are, if you will, two ways of understanding such a, a festival, something that commemorates a salvation for Am Yisrael. The first is that we are celebrating the fact That we were saved. The second is we celebrate how we were saved. In other words, how do you know miraculously we're saved? Because we're still here. How did it happen? I'm not really sure. But I did know that I didn't expect to be around today. And if I'm here, it's a miracle. It's by God's grace. Or the battle was miraculous. I can't believe what happened. The Rebbe suggests that the Rambam understood that this is a distinction between the festival of Purim and the festival of Hanukkah. As we've talked about many, many times, the salvation of Purim did not come in an overtly miraculous way. There was no particular moment you could point a finger at and say, there, that's the miracle. We talked about this in, in previous episodes, the idea of what is fish on We followed what the Talmud says that you raise your voice when you say balai lahu because the king couldn't sleep. That's a miracle? Not very dramatic. Not very obvious, you might say. The real miracle of Purim can only be appreciated by listening to the entirety of the Megillah in order. In order to demonstrate that HaKadosh Baruch Hu strings it all together and that everything happens by divine design. But on Hanukkah there were many obvious miracles. On Hanukkah we say, Masarto Giborim Biyad We say Hashem gave over mighty armies into the hands of the few, the meek. In other words, The salvation of Hanukkah and Purim were very different by definition. Hanukkah celebrates the miracles that happened, culminating with the miracle of the oil that continued to burn. Purim, on the other hand, commemorates the matter of fact that against all odds, and ultimately, by the grace of God and His miracles, we're still here. It's a very different kind of celebration. It makes sense that Purim be celebrated tomorrow or the day after tomorrow. It makes sense that Hanukkah be celebrated on the day the miracle was experienced. And that's precisely what we're told now. al Cain. So now we read verse 19. Therefore, hayehudim haprozim ha-Prozim. The Jewish people living in the open areas, and incidentally, it's written peruzim, spread about. Think about Nachmanides, Ramban's comment that we read in the beginning of today's episode. be'ore ha-prozois, the Jews who sit or dwell in the open cities, they make this day into a day of feasting, rejoicing, a yom tov and the sending of gifts, foodstuffs, to one another. Now, Rashi says, or we refer here to those those who aren't dwelling in a walled city. They celebrate on the 14th. But those who are living in walled cities, they'll celebrate on the 15th Kishushan. So the Sifzich says, what's Rashi talking about? Why is he explaining this? Like, what was missing in the verse? So the Sifzich says, it says, Jewish people who live in wide open areas will celebrate in Yudalad. Okay, so I understand that those who live outside of walled cities will celebrate on the 14th. Uh, What about those who live in walled cities? When should they celebrate? The Megillah doesn't say. So Rashi's telling us it's logical. Naturally, it makes perfect sense that whatever was done first time around, so to speak, would become the template for continued observance. And so whatever they did in the beginning is now going to be replicated. All came because of this. Those who live in the open cities continue to celebrate on the 14th. Don't live in the walled cities. They'll celebrate on a different day. Now going back to the commentary of Rashi, the Hekev Zeh, and this encirclement, this walled reality, it's got to go back to Joshua. This is how our rabbis expounded on it in the and Megillah on page 2. And the Sif Chamim continues here. And why does Rashi add that in his comment? Says the Sivsech Chamim. So that you not misunderstand that we speak here about Shushan and Shushan being walled and cities that are walled at the time of Achashverosh or Shushan. Pirush Rashi feels a need. He's compelled to tell you. And this encirclement that we speak of has to be miyamais ben Nun. So what's going on here? How did Yeshua ben Nun get mixed into this? The Gemara says it. That's true, the Gemara says it. But why is it observed in that particular fashion? The Chidush Haran on the Meseches Megillah right at the beginning opens up and he says the Jerusalem Talmud asks precisely this question why didn't we say whoever was living in a walled city at the time of Achashverosh, he should be celebrating the way they celebrated at that time and what's the answer the Gemara's answer is to give honor to the land of Israel if they would say from the days of Achashverosh, at that time Yerushalayim and certainly the other cities of Eretz Israel did not have walls. Because Jerusalem wasn't rebuilt yet. And certainly the other cities, they were at the time of Achashverosh all in a state of disrepair. But if we talk about Miamais Yeshua, then Israel comes forward into the fray. And there were many, many cities that were walled in the time of Yahushua. And then the Ran adds something fascinating. There are those who suggest that's Mepneisha tchilas ma'pelosah shalam that Amalek's first defeat was Moshe Yahushua. Remember, Moshe Rabbeinu tasked Yahushua with carrying this out turns out that the miracle begins with Joshua. So it's not just kavod l'Eretz Yisrael. There's a unique connection to Yehoshua. I found something fascinating. The el Zutta and the commentary of the Levush goes on to say, Yehoshua, We emphasize Yehoshua, not Moshe Aaron. Because it was by Yehoshua's hands. He was the one who led the Jewish people in battle against Amalek that very first time. And that's why Shushan Purim honors the holy land of Eretz Yisrael. Now, the truth is that this idea of Shushan Purim being the walled or walled celebration of Purim, very possibly during the second of Migdash, had a significant amount of Eretz Yisrael celebrating Purim on the 15th day. Some of the cities that we believe were walled cities were Ashdod, Ashkelon, Beersheva, Beit Shan, Gushcholov, Hebron, Haifa, Tiveria, Yafo, Lud, Gaza, Akko, Tzfas, Ramla, and even Shechem. So why don't they do this today? Well, many of these cities do. Interestingly, the Rebbe once wrote to my wife's uncle when they had a, a shluchim in, in, uh, in Haifa. The Rebbe wrote to him. He, he, he wrote that the convention was going to be in Basar Knesset Hara Carmel. That was the name of the, where the venue was going to be. The Rebbe circled the words Hara Carmel and wrote Bo Korin Hamagila to the best of my knowledge the only shul in which the Megillah is actually read on Shushan Purim is on in the Lubavitch shul my uncle's shul and he told me that the chief rabbi bracha, of Heberon of Shor Yoshev HaKoyin used to daven in his minion once a year and that was on Shushan Purim, where the Megillah would be read without a bracha why don't we read the Megillah with a bracha in these other cities why only in Yerushalayim well here's the thing we know that cities like Beit or or Tiberia, Tiberias, we know that it's approximately in that area, but we don't know with absolute certainty. The only city we can be a 1,000% certain of, the Temple Mount, Yerushalayim. We know where Yerushalayim is. The only other city that you have any near fair certainty, of course, is Hebron, Mara Otherwise, hey, the city could have been a hundred meters one way or the other way, and actually we could be missing the original archaeology. So because of this, it becomes a big suffolk, what's called a question, and as such, the only city that definitely celebrates this without any question whatsoever is Yerushalayim. And so ultimately, Purim, a miracle that took place outside of Eretz the epicenter being far away in the Persian capital, Resonates with unique energy in the land of Eretz Yisrael and specifically in Eretz Tzion, which is Yerushalayim, centered around the Beis HaMikdash. Now, this this ran is further emphasized by the words of the Levush himself, who says, Vahatam, and the reason. The reason they celebrated the open areas from the walled areas is because because miracles happened in different days. The miracle of Shushan and then the miracle of everywhere else. And because it happened outside of Israel at a time when Israel was still in a state of destruction and disrepair says the Levush in Simen Tophre 688 of the Levush Achur, which is Hilchus Purim he says in Eretz he says sages of the generation saw Lasse Zechel Eretz Yisrael to make a memory of Eretz Yisrael B'Nezem COVID Yisrael to honor Eretz Yisrael. To set aside the cities of Eretz Yisrael. We have to assume that most of the ancient cities were in fact walled in the days of Yoshua. And that's where we read like Shushan. I the Shushan itself wasn't walled in the days of Yahushua as we learned in the very beginning of the Megillah that Shushan itself is a fairly new city. <coughs> he says, We have to assume that all major municipalities were walled. That's how major municipalities were once built. Even if they weren't walled in the time of Mordechai and Esther, it's a way to give honor to Eretz Yisrael." So this idea of giving honor to Heretz Yisrael is also, as we learned, uniquely linked to Yehoshua. And here I want to share with you a fascinating psikta Rav Kahana. This is quoted by a mimer from the Rebbe that was delivered in Purim, 1961, in Tav The Rebbe says, we note that the verse says, There's a battle against Amalek from generation to generation. What is the meaning of from generation to generation? What's the emphasis here? He says this is, indicates the idea of Nitzchias. And the Rebbe brings down different sources. There's a mechilta that talks about two generations. It should have said dor lid, dor vodor. Why does it mean dor dor? Sounds like two generations. Not generational. The mechilta says the generation of Moshe that's the battle prosecuted by Yahushua, The generation of Shmuel, Samuel. Battle prosecuted by King Saul. Another opinion is we refer to generation of King Saul and the generation of Mashiach. But in the Psikta, there are three generations identified. Even though it says door door, which is two, the Psikta says really it's three, and the three are the generation of Moshe, battle carried out by Yahushua. The generation of Shmuel, battle carried out by Shaul HaMelech. And the generation of Mordechai and Esther. In other words, there is a sweep of Jewish history. And all of this is linked to the concept of Mechiyah Zarah It's about wiping out the seed of Amalek. And therefore, Yehoshua only weakens Amalek. As it says, It doesn't say he wiped them out. He only inflicted weakness. In the end, it is Shmuel's generation, Shaul, who wipes out Amalek, but Agag is left behind and he sires a child who has a child who begets Haman, the man who plotted genocide against the entirety of the Jewish nation. isyalad Haman. And so it was not was incomplete. And that's why we had to have the third generation. And This was the generation of Shmuel to the generation of Mordechai and Esther. And this is the idea, the Gemara says, Kimu that they re-accepted upon themselves what they had accepted in the days of Moshe Rabbeinu, that that which was begun in the time of Moshe only came to fruition in the time of Mordechai and Esther. And Purim represents a paradigm shift that sets us on the road towards the coming of Mashiach, to the generation of Mashiach. And the generation of Mashiach, the will no longer be, and the Shechina will fill a reality. My dear friends, this idea is very obviously linked to Yehoshua. We can see this because, as the Me'iri says, God says, V'sim Yehoshua, Place it in the ears of Joshua. Yehoshua was the first one to go and battle against the Maliki so to speak, launches this battle, and his name, as the Me'iri points out, is ever associated with it, Purim. We look at the cities that are from the time of Yehoshua bin Nun. And this, in the end, will, of course, only happen when Mashiach comes. So what does it mean in the present day and age? And with this, my friends, I'm going to conclude. What does it mean in today's day and age? Purim, 1955, after the delivering the mimer, the Rebbe speaks at length about the fascinating reality that Purim is the only holiday on the Jewish calendar that's celebrated on different days. I don't have the time to share all the nuance, but he goes into fascinating detail, and the Rebbe brings source after source to bolster his argument. And it's true that Rachmanides explains that the miracles were different in nature. Yet, why is it that ultimately all the Jewish people couldn't celebrate on the same day? It doesn't matter if it was different in the beginning. You know, parenthetically, the Ma'am Lois brings down that all Yamim Tovim are on the 15th. Pesach is on the 15th. Sukkot is on the 15th. The 15th day of Av is a celebration. The 15th day of Shvat is a celebration. He says, we have a perfect opportunity to make the 15th day Shushan Purim Purim for everybody. Why don't we just move forward from the 14th to the 15th? Make it a unified Purim. And the Rebbe says, this is because Purim is really about the battle against Amalek, which is ongoing. Who's Amalek? There's, there's a battle within, my friends. As I described in great detail two episodes ago, a molek exists in microscopic form within our own hearts. When we battle a molek from within, it enables us to vanquish a molek from without. I gave you the metaphor two episodes ago of imagine if we could discover the first beginnings of a tumor, al-Atsan, and just I'll liberate it with a dose of natural medications. Destroy what later grows on to become a terrible growth that metastasizes and threatens life and destroys the quality of a person's living. Nip it in the bud. Everything is deep within us, there's an amolek within us. And the Rebbe says everybody has a different amalek. You might have somebody who, he, who lives, he's a God be Israel. He lives in what's called a walled city. The walled city? The walled city is a, what you could metaphorize as, God says, I encircle you with a ring of fire. A person who spends his entire life immersed in holiness. What's a malik? Malik is arrogance. No humility. Moshe Rabbeinu. The paragon of humility chooses Yehoshua, a super paragon of humility, to go and do battle against the Molech, Behar Lonu Anoshim. Anshe says the Medrash. people who embody and represent and reflect the values of Moshe Rabbeinu. A Malik is called bilitam. He has this incredible insolence and unbelievable arrogance. And a person could be a great rabbi, a great sage, very accomplished. And he says, you ask him, is he a metzius? He says, of course I'm a metzius. Of course I'm a somebody. I learn Torah. I pray. I'm a big somebody. I'm an important somebody. Am I a chocham? Are you kidding? My piski halach have been accepted by the Jewish people and the Rebbe goes into a whole nuanced thing of that. Proves to you that it must be the truth of Torah. A person like this, I have no amalek. I have no issues with humility. Oh, but you do. Because every one of us has an Amalek inside him. And we may not be able to battle the big, bad Amalek out there. Nobody knows who Amalek is. But the mitzvah is a mitzvah until this very day. In fact, on the Shabbat before Purim, we have to fulfill this mitzvah reading from a safer Torah. Because it says, K'tov zot write it in a book and then keep reminding the people. Forgetfulness comes within a year. So every year we take out a special Sefer Torah on the Shabbat before Purim because that is the essence of the celebration of Purim. Battle Malik. Know that there will be different kinds of Amalek. Some of us in walled cities, some of us in wide open situations. For some of us to move the needle forward in a small amount of new, fresh humility and acceptance of Torah and mitzvahs is a big deal. Some people still have to put a mezuzah on their front door. Some people have to start eating kosher, put on tefillin, and maybe begin to light Shabbat candles. Just do it. And that's a battle against your little Amalek. And some people have a much, much more nuanced situation. By and large, they're doing fine in their Yiddishkeit. But there's tiny little problems. and Those tiny little problems can metastasize if they aren't dealt with. Such as the battle against a Molech. And that, the Rebbe says, is the deeper meaning of why Purim is pointedly celebrated on different days to remind each of us that the battle goes on individually. Each of us must do his or her best to battle the spirit of a Molech. And if we do our part, surely. Hashem Yisbarach will do his. And Amalek will be destroyed by Hashem himself, ushering in the beautiful new era that is filled with peace, universal God consciousness, and unimaginable prosperity with the coming of Mashiach amenu, speedily and in our days amen. Thank you so much for joining. I hope you found this class uplifting, inspirational, insightful, and something else like that. If you did, please, I'd appreciate it if you like. Share it with others, because Hashem's Torah should be studied by everybody. And if I can ask you to please be so kind as to help us build the channel, youtube.com forward slash Kaplan. Your assistance is appreciated. I thank you for joining today. I look forward to seeing you back. Zag Have a beautiful day.